0: This is Python Bytes, Python headlines and news delivered directly to your earbuds. It's episode seven, recorded Wednesday, January 4th, 2017. Hey, Brian. Hey, happy new year. Yeah, happy new year. It's great to be back together. We've gone three weeks without discussing cool things that came out in the Python community, and I, I think it's time to get back together. The Python news must flow. It must, and plus I miss this. This is fun. Yeah, it's definitely, definitely fun. So like many of our episodes, this one is sponsored by Rollbar. They help you take the pain out of errors. So thank you to Rollbar. And, uh, we'll have more to say about them throughout the show. So uh, Brian, you had a little warning. You wanted to just get it out of the way? <laughs> yeah, I've got,
1: there's some, a couple, I want to try to list some of the names of the articles are of the people that wrote the articles that we are reading and talking about in this episode. And some of them have names that I am most definitely going to mispronounce. I hope you don't take offense at it. I have a, a last name that everybody mispronounces, so <laughs> um, I I understand. You're, but, you're uh, used to it? <laughs> yeah. I get uh, oaken and uh, mostly
0: oaken is what I get, but yeah. <laughs> But you're not a tree. <laughs> so. Hey, so before we get to the first episode, the first uh, news item, I actually want to do something. I'm going to open up my terminal. I'm going to type, type something, okay? I'm going to type Python 3 dash capital V. Do you know what it says? Not Python three five two, not no, anymore.
1: It says Python three point six. That's right, Python, 360. Yeah, so, uh, Python three six zero. Yeah, so Python 3.6 was announced on uh, December twenty third, and uh, it's uh, now Python three six zero is our official latest release, and this is really exciting. Um, I've got, I've already started using some of the new features um, in uh, in my in my writing. I'm definitely taking advantage of the uh, f strings. I don't know how you. What, how you would call those. But. Yeah I
0: think it's I think the other languages call it string interpolation but it's the F character that indicates it. I, yeah. I Swift and C sharp call it string interpolation.
1: Oh, uh, I'm going to call them the F in strings. So, <laughs> I love it. Um, the uh, But in uh, celebration of this I know we've already talked about 3.6 but I've got links to the in our show notes for the announcement and the what's new article from docs.python.org. but there's also a couple other articles that are cool. There's a Python 3.6 is packed with goodness article from Sirdar Yigelalp. Uh, no, I got that one wrong. That's on InfoWorld. But it's a list of uh, things that he thinks is cool in 3.6, including async await and um, uh, use, the, use the use of that more. Uh, the, the improvements of memory and speed. And I, I'm i really excited about that. And uh, some uh, something that I didn't know about is uh, some of the improved API support so that tracers and debuggers and stuff can hook into Python easier.
0: Yeah, it's definitely packed with goodness. I think that's that's great. Um, another article that you pointed out was Adopt Python 3. Uh, I really like that one as well, and I'll let you go to some of the stats and, and say the name as well, the, the author.
1: Yeah, so this is um, the me- on Medium, and I'm going to try this one because it's a cool name. Dibya Chakravarti? I don't know. Um, cool name, but um, yeah, so there... Uh, this other adopt Python three article talked. I thought it was interesting. So there's a. We, I have heard of a couple of um, sites called the Wall of Superpowers, uh, and Python three readiness that are two. Uh, two. Pages that list uh, most popular Python packages and how much of them are Python 3 ready. And I, the numbers are higher than I expected, actually 187 out of 200 on one of them and 341 out of 360 on the other. And I think this is important because a lot of people uh, tried to switch to Python 3 a long time ago and one of their favorite packages wasn't supported but I, they, it probably is now. So um, check those out. And then this uh, person also uh, wrote up an IPython notebook and had some statistics um, to pull out, not just the most popular, but everything. He pulled everything on PyPy that was um, uh, listed as stable and had at least one release in 2016. That was 6,000 packages of those. So there must be a lot of like packages on PyPy that are not or PyPI that are not um, updated very often. But... um, Yeah, um, I really
0: like it when the statistics do some basic filtering, like nobody cares whether that package that almost no one's using hasn't been updated for 10 years supports Python 2 or Python 3. Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
1: But of the the what he calls stable and active, um, it was interesting, there's 14% of those don't even cover uh, Python 2. They're Python 3 only packages and uh 28% um which is higher than I would hope but 28% are python 2 only um but the author estimates that a lot of those could easily be switched if they're really important to you and uh but the, he does list out um he has a list of all the ones that he calls sticky the one 25% of the of 28 so I don't know I'm not that's not very many, 14, 7% total. Yeah, math on the fly. Uh, anyway, of uh, those sticky packages that may be a problem for you. But, uh, you know, I I had a pro- I was in one of those camps. A, a year ago, I tried to switch our testing to Python 3, and there was a package that I needed
0: that wasn't switched. And it is now, so I don't have that excuse anymore. Yeah, that, that's really great. I love the wall of superpowers. This article is really uh, interesting. And I think it makes, a, it's a good argument, and it's, data-driven which is cool in fact like you said you can get the ipython notebook for it my final thought on python moving from legacy python to python 3.6 the new python is you get a lot of benefit in this release just by installing and running on it if you don't touch your code at all because there's a lot of memory and performance speed up so that's really cool
1: yeah um and it's the instead of walls of and the wall of superpowers um maybe we could look at maybe roads and bridges
0: yeah, there's walls, there's roads, and there's bridges. And, you know, I, I don't know how it is in the rest of the world. I know in Germany, it's not quite this way. But in the US, we tend to neglect our physical infrastructure, right? Like, I had to swerve the other day, because there's a huge pothole on the road, and, and so on. And, you know, it's a, it's a problem. But I think... The real problem for us these days is actual digital infrastructure. So there's a really great article, uh, not an article, it's more like a report or even a book. It's like 150 pages called Roads and Bridges, The Unseen Labor Behind Our Digital Infrastructure. It's written by Nadia Egbal, and she did a really good job. It's, it's a new, relatively new report. It came out in July. It basically talks about open-source and mostly open-source infrastructure, not open-source projects. So not not necessarily things like Django, but more things like PyPI and PIP, right? The, the underlying foundation, things like um, OpenSSL that everybody builds on top of. And it turns out there's actually a really big problem across the board. Like if you think physical infrastructure is neglected, you should see the digital infrastructure, All right? So I actually did a whole session with this, some of the Folks from the Python community, Eric Culture from Read the Docs, Donald Stuff from PyPI on Talk Python in episode 84. And we talked about this a little bit. Basically, this, this report goes through and outlines all the challenges that they see for supporting things like PyPI, supporting things like OpenSSL. And they said that until Heartbleed, you know, Heartbleed was that really serious bug that you could sort of send a bunch of requests to a server running OpenSSL that was vulnerable, and you could actually get it to leak uh, information, unencrypted information back out. So it's still, until then, it was like that thing was just barely coming along. Like there's almost nobody that worked on it. There's like one guy or a couple of guys that very, very short term were able to work on it. And two-thirds of all the web servers used that for their communication And think about that. Another example, they talked about Ruby Gems, the website done by volunteers. Somebody had found some kind of vulnerability in it. And the the people who had supported it, they're like, all right, we'll fix this on the weekend because we have jobs. We can't work on this infrastructure. And like, I mean, that's like pip to Ruby, right? It's really important. And it turned out it got hacked and taken down before the weekend. And so people had to like schedule vacation days so they could get Get it back running. Uh, one more example is Pi Pi itself, and uh, you know Donald Stuffed works on that. He was uh, employed by HP. HP went through a bunch of layoffs, and not even really knowingly, I think, took out his position. Now there's Donald's doing that in his spare time. Who else supports Pi Pi? They do 400 terabytes of traffic a month, and it costs almost forty thousand dollars to keep Pip running. so you can say pip install a thing that's like forty thousand dollars worth of infrastructure and there's only a few baskets that are supporting that thing it's 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 quite precarious so i wanted to bring up roads and bridges the unseen labor behind our digital infrastructure this report i think people who care about this will find this very well written very interesting and lots of neat stories well even if they're depressing (laughs) yeah it it is interesting Uh, uh, thanks for bringing that up yeah absolutely i threw a bunch of um bunch of little excerpts that I got from from the article. People can flip through and see if they're interested in that. Speaking of uh,
1: things that we take for granted, I know that a lot of um, there's some libraries out there that people use all the time. And if a library is used by a lot of people, making changes to it can be a little scary. RC2 of uh, Matplotlib 2.0.0 came out in December. And Thomas Caswell is, I don't know if he's the only person supporting it, but he's one of the main developers. And uh, he was telling me that there's, it's been uh, one of the changes in this is um, some of the changes in the default style. So the default, if you just, um, if you're not styling your plots uh, specifically and you're just going with whatever Matplotlib. Uh, comes up with those are going to change and uh, that took 10 years in the making apparently uh, to change that so this this library's been around for a while anyway so he would love to have feedback so we've got a list of uh, uh, in our show notes there's a list of um, changes there's a list of releases list of changes and uh, 2.0.0 is coming out uh, soon ish Uh, he's not sure when but he'd like to have People try it out and see if any of the default styles or um, what, what they think of them. He wants feedback. so.
0: Well, I have a little feedback for him. One of the posts you uh, link to in the show notes is, is basically a set of pictures, old version, new version with default styling, almost universally. They look better to me. They look more modern. Um, they don't look like here's a, a cheap, unstyled sort of thing. I'm just going to drop in. They actually look like something that you'd be really excited to share, right? So I, thumbs up for me
1: yeah I, I thought so too, and I thought um i i would I didn't even think about how hard it would be to to change something under the you know change the rug out of a lot of people, and you know a lot of people don't follow him or follow uh, Python, so I'm glad we're bringing this up to try to get people to go check it out
0: yeah, I totally agree so it's it's easy to look through it if you care about matplotlib, get out there and give them some feedback while you can hey before we move on, let me tell you about rollbar oh please tell me about rollbar. I recently sent out an email. Uh, like a, a newsletter email to a bunch of people taking some of my courses. And it turned out that I had typed in a URL incorrectly. Like, so it was like, click here to launch this, this video. It was like player slash lecture slash one, two, three, four. Well, some like non numerical number or a letter got in there. My web app was trying to parse that as an integer. And so I hit send on this email to like thousands of people. And then all of a sudden, my phone starts going beep 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 beep, <laughs> crash crash crash, error in your website. And I'm like, what the heck is this? I pull it up and like I immediately see what's going on. I see the stack trace. I open up my my um open up PyCharm, quickly change it, do a push to deploy, and within five minutes of sending the email, nobody ever sent me a message. I found the error and fixed it, and the rest of the people that opened the email didn't crash. And that was from Rollbar. And if if you if you guys want that same type of behavior, that same type of safety net, you can get it at rollbar.com/slash/pythonbytes. That's awesome.
1: I wonder how long you would have figured out on your own
0: without that. that I would have never known until somebody complained. Like, so it was, it was really good. I felt bad about it, but it was good that at least I got it fixed right away. Yeah, awesome. One of the things I'm a huge fan of is MongoDB and document databases. I really think document databases are like this perfect sweet spot between performance, maintainability, ease of use, and relational integrity. There's a really great article I want to point out. If you're interested in MongoDB or document databases in general and Python and you want to get started, the guys over at RealPython, Michael Herman, wrote an article called Introduction to MongoDB and Python. They talk about what's the difference between SQL and NoSQL. They talk about the primary way to talk to the database through PyMongo, like inserting and querying data. And I also talk about this thing called Mongo Engine. Mongo Engine's like the SQL alchemy. You create classes, you put in constraints and defaults, and then you map those classes to documents in your database.
1: Yeah, I'm really excited about this. I'm, I'm trying to use PyMongo
0: on one of my projects, so this is good. Yeah, it's definitely good. And PyMongo is, is pretty sweet. It's MongoDB, it's easy to set up and use. It's open source, so that's, that's all good. I actually did a one and a half hour presentation at this conference in London called software architect and they recorded it and put it up and it was basically the same stuff. So I put a link in the show notes as well to this uh, thing I called applied no with MongoDB and Python. So if people want to like a video version of mostly the same topics. They can check that out as well.
1: Um, and actually from you, I learned about tiny I think on one of your podcasts.
0: Oh yeah. Tiny DB is awesome. Yeah. So that's, that was neat too. Yeah. Also document database. You know, I love things that are for humans.
1: <laughs> yeah. Next up, we've got uh, an article introducing Maya um, date times for humans, um, and most of the for humans stuff comes from Kenneth Wrights. Wrights, Reitz. Do
0: you know how to pronounce his name? I've been saying Wrights. Think I think that's right. <laughs> if that was like a German reading, but if it's Reitz, I'm sorry, Kenneth. <laughs> so, Kenneth, if you're listening, please uh, let us let us know. Uh, yes.
1: Or please. I could like. I guess, look at any talk that he's given and try to get that. But uh, (laughs) anyway, Um, but um, the date times seem like something that's just easy until you actually try to do something that's not. It quickly comes, goes from uh, easy to, easy to deal with to hard to deal with very fast. And so I'm excited that Kenneth has taken this on and tried to come up with a, uh, his own, uh, library for dealing with uh, date times and date time math and parsing dates and human readable stuff it just sounds exciting and we're gonna i'm gonna give it a try
0: yeah he has um requests which is the most popular python package ever downloaded seven million times a month which is insane he has records which is like just write SQL for human sort of thing and now dates a oh, very very cool stuff nice work kenneth
1: yeah Definitely. And a, another package that I'm interested in is um, that's coming up is an alternative to uh, Flask or something Flask-like.
0: There are more and more reasons to move away from legacy Python to Python, especially Python 3.5 and above because of the cool concurrency stuff. One of the things that people talk about when they talk about Node.js, which I'm not a huge fan of Node.js, but you know it does have its, its benefits, is it's sort of asynchronous from the start programming model right okay now that's that's been traditionally hard in Python because the whiskey API doesn't really support it super well. Frameworks like Flask and pyramid they don't na- you can't just write async methods that all of a sudden become async right there's like too much there's too much in the built in stack that doesn't understand async. this guy I don't know what his real name is I can just know him as Channel Cat <laughs> created this thing called sanic which is called a Python 3.5 or higher web server written to go fast. And it's based on the API of Flask. It leverages the async and await functionality of Python 3.5, which I think is really, really cool. It also uses the UV loop, which is a really fast asynchronous I.O. loop for Python 3. It's really cool. So if I want to create um, some kind of um, method, like a, a view action method sort of thing, just like Flask, I'll say app.route and give it a, like a URL, so like slash, but instead of saying def some method, you say async def some method. And you can await throughout your method. And all the, the cool benefits of letting the threads go on to do other work while you're waiting on databases, web services, files, things like that, just happen magically. So you can get really good performance numbers. Wow neat yeah so so it's pretty cool and the fact that it's a flask more or less like the flask api means you don't have to like start from scratch and learn a totally new thing they actually have some performance numbers compared to other things and they don't have pyramid in here which is too bad because pyramid flies on python 3 but when you think of asynchronous programming in python a python web frameworks typically you, you would probably come up first with tornado and they have uh some tests they did and they said okay tornado did like 2,000 requests per second with a 44-second millisecond res- latency, response time, basically. I said, okay, well, what about Flask? Well, Flask did twice as good, so like 5,000 requests a second, 20 millisecond response time, almost double good in both directions. The Sanic thing, using Python 3 in the UV loop, is 33,000 requests per second with a three millisecond response time. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah. See, Python's better than legacy Python. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, Python,
0: definitely. <laughs> <laughs> That's really cool. So Python 3.5, the async await is a cool programming model. And to have this nice web framework to plug in there, this thing's going to go places. We're going to be talking about it for a while, I bet.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I, some, At some point, I need to talk with you about trying to figure out if I were going to start up a new, a new application, uh, would I care about
0: asynchronous stuff right away or... Yeah, that's a good question, right? Like how much do you really care? Because I mean, on like let's say on, on say the talk python website, I think I have ten processes farmed out to handle the requests. So like, you know, let's just go with Flask. If I were running Flask, five thousand requests a second, that's fifty thousand requests a second. That's like a pretty insane amount that I'm gonna have to hit before I care, right? But still, there are people who care and having that built in. That's pretty cool. Yeah, definitely.
1: I can't believe we're we're wrapped it up. We've got
0: all these done already. I know, I know. I think we've got a bunch of cool topics. I, I love SanEc. I love that Python 3.6 is out. Um, and I'm happy to be back and sharing it with everybody. It's It was a nice break, but it's even nicer to be back.
1: Yeah. Do you have any um,
0: extra news you want to share with us? No, I just stepped away from the computer. I went to California, put my toes in the sand, and, and just kind of forgot about things for a while and came back refreshed and excited to keep doing what I'm doing. How about you? You're still working on your book, right?
1: Definitely. And I've ramped up the schedule. So I spent the Christmas break at the keyboard and, uh, <laughs> I've got, um, I'm, I think about halfway done of, with the rough draft approximately. Um, but going through the first level editor, um, I'm still, I'm still shooting for a beta, at least a beta release by PyCon. Um, the, the, uh, my goal of getting a physical copy by PyCon seems actually insane right now, So, <laughs> uh,
0: but that's what I'm You can do it. We're all rooting for you, Brian. You can do it.
1: And um, a whole bunch of Test and Code episodes coming up. I've got one, one, one interview recorded and about four interviews scheduled, so these will keep going. I have not quit.
0: All right. Awesome. Glad to hear those are coming. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks a lot for talking to me today. Yeah, it's been great. Thanks for sharing the news with me, and we'll see you later. Thanks.